it's my planet and they're just living on it. <laughs> That's right. That's the way it looks anyhow on that map. and we are going to start the the current episode of Mention and Dispatches. We, we are at that point in the season where I have given up on sequencing. This will have a number attached to it that's probably different than the number under which we are recording it. Who cares? It's the current uh, episode of Mention and Dispatches, and we're glad the audience is here with us. And, and we have a podcast rookie with us this time, a, a first-timer for Mention and Dispatches, although I think you've done some podcasts before, just not with us. Um, that is correct. Yeah. So those are the dulcet tones of our buddy Tim, also known as Hellcat6, and uh, and the guy that runs Catastrophe Games. How are you doing tonight, dude? I am doing great. This is uh, my second uh, call tonight after working all day on my day job, so life couldn't be any better yeah yeah well uh for what it's worth I, I i actually gave you a couple of days notice about this so i appreciate that that was awesome yeah it wasn't you know hey i need you on the call tonight which i've done to people in the past uh but so so we got tim here tonight we, originally we were hoping to have a couple other folks join us with tim where we were going to talk uh small press war game companies in the large but since we've got tim here we're just going to sort of focus on catastrophe games a bit and let him pimp that some but but tim is t- tim is actually making a a legitimate go at something i tried to do 15 18 years ago which was running my own publishing company and uh and tim has, has already far exceeded any meager success i ever had um which we're talking set a really low bar at that point so it's uh it, it tim's games are cool and if you haven't been to catastrophegames.net click the link right there in the episode that we've got and uh and, and go check them out because because it's cool shit and and we've got a couple of them in uh in some unboxing days uh we've had tim team up with us at origins and i think the plan is for you to be there with us again this summer right oh yeah Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would. I would just go back and say I don't know if this would actually be uh, considered small game press. I think I'm more a micro or microscopic. <laughs> I'm not really sure where I fit in, but somewhere below small press, I think is probably a more accurate term to describe where I'm at in the game world right now. Well, but you're doing stuff more than just your own designs, which means you have already taken a step above Vanity Press. That's true. Yeah, because I foolishly, the game I came up with is the most expensive game I've got. So every time I I publish that, I just barely break even. So um, I learned from that. Uh, thankfully, and, and trusting other people's designs, which are actually more profitable. So I need to concentrate <laughs> on that. For the audience that doesn't know who Catastrophe Games are, it, three years, four years now? Um, The first Kickstarter, I think, was in 2020. Um, so this is just two years. Two years. Okay. Yep. Okay. So two years and change. We saw you at Origins in 2021, the October Origins, that that wackadoodle weird Origins in the in the middle of the school year. You'd hung out with us at Origins before when you were a demo minion for other people and hung out playing some games with us. But but as Catastrophe Games, um, I think Origins 2021 was sort of your welcome to the world moment, wasn't it? Yeah, that was like my debut. Um, I kind of like going to Origins because it's not as overwhelming as Gen Con. I mean, Gen Con is just gigantic and there's so much going on. Everything's so expensive. Um, And I like the fact that there were still a lot of historical and war gamers at Origins. I mean, there might be a Gen Con. They're just so hidden away from all the other stuff that's going on that you couldn't even tell. Um, But uh, there's always been a good, strong historical presence at Origins. So I like going there. It's not that far away from Michigan. Um, and uh, it's been a pretty receptive crowd uh, 
first started going there, I was helping out the Grand Grand uh, Gamers Guild uh, from from Grand Rapids here, um, okay. and then started working for Uva at uh, Academy Games, and uh, so I felt pretty comfortable. Uh, with how Origins works, and so that seemed like a pretty good fit to start hanging out, uh, hanging out our shingle and, and setting up a shop there. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with the uh, with the Origins stuff. So you uh, somewhere along the way you said, "Hey, I got an idea for a game," or did you start with, "Hey, I got an idea for a game company. Let me go find it." Well, you know, so I was working for Uva, and he has a lot of great games out there and i learned a ton with working for academy games but wow they've got so many games already on their queue that uh i didn't have any idea even if they decided to go and publish my game whether or not it was ever going to see daylight so i looked at that and it was odd that i had more time to devote to starting my own company than i did working part-time for him uh, just because you know his business kept growing and there was all these needs that he had and it was turning into i should probably move to fremont and and work directly for him full-time or you know do something game related on the side and continue working for the army and i'll uh, just be honest there's a lot more money in the army than there is in, <laughs> in, in board games let's just put it that way so um, i think there's more money in waste management than there is in board work games yeah yeah especially when you decide you know what let's not just go and do board games as as a niche let's just go and do historical board games concentrating on war games because that seems like that's that even that much more profitable yeah <clears throat> so the way to make a small fortune in war gaming is to start with a large fortune that's right that's right uh like the big joke that my my parents grew up as farmers and the big joke that they they had is what would you do if you had a million dollars and the answer was keep farming until it's all gone <laughs> So, so you decide to uh, to to take control, seize your own destiny, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna launch Catastrophe Games in order to get Tim's design out before 2028 or whenever it might have actually come out from a different company. Yep, that's pretty much the impetus behind that. Um, and then I looked at I looked at what my game was like, and, and it had a lot of different mechanics to it. And as I said before, it's a really expensive game to produce, and I just thought. I don't think that needs to be game number one. So I started looking around and found a couple other designs that were much easier to produce. And I thought, let's let's figure this out. Let's figure out the Kickstarter thing. Let's figure out how to run a game company and a website and all the myriad of other little tiny things and ankle biters that you have to do when you start a, a publishing company. And so I went through there and I think, yeah, my game wasn't, I'll have to look around now. My game wasn't until the fourth game uh, before that came out. And thankfully then I had an opportunity to, to work through how how the whole process works for the other three games before I got to that one. So the games through the queues that that, that you've kicked out from Catastrophe Games. I, I know we had, and I'm probably going to get them out of order here, but we had the uh, we had USS Laffy. Yep. Um, so we we uh, we had that one. We had Judean Hammer. Um, and then what what snuck in there? If if Zermatt was number four, what was the third one? Uh, the actual the first game was The Landing Gallipoli by Joe Schmidt. Ah, Gallipoli. Is, That's the one I forgot. It is a strange little uh, card game that um, it took me uh, I think twenty plays before I won. Um, but it does a really good job of, of just showing just how difficult things were for Anzac on that first day in Gallipoli. Um, gotcha. So it was very interesting design. Unfortunately, um, it it seems 
unusual because it, it, it was such an unusual game, I guess, from the standpoint of it's just a few cards and it's the same battle over and over again. But it just the way that you go through that, it kind of plays you along thinking you might be able to win. It's a solitaire game, by the way. And it, it like you might win and then, you know, two rolls later, you realize you're doomed yet again. Um, but Joe's come up with a couple of different designs on that that uh, we're also looking at. And I've also been kind of blessed that uh, Judean Hammer, which... Uh, struck me as a fantastic game right off the bat as far as its its uh, deck-destroying mechanic, um, that it is also one that a number of different people are working on follow-up games in the same family. So folks will see more of those down the, down the pike as well. Yeah, we're, we're going to circle back around to some of the things that are coming up, whether they're actually on your website yet or not. Um, I'd forgotten about Gallipoli. Um, I remember Laffy and I remember Judean Hammer. So, so we got Gallipoli's a solo game, Laffy's a solo game, Judean Hammer is not. Um, no, very much not. <laughs> and then we finally get around to to Tim's baby. The reason for <laughs> all of this. Talk to us a little bit about Zermatt. Well, Zermatt came out as is something that I looked at like there's got to be a way to kind of talk and explain and explore what coin is like without having to look at the big one over the world version of coin like most of the traditional coin games are. From my experience in Afghanistan, my version of coin was like one district. You know, I, I would go from Kabul, I would go out to Zermatt and a couple other districts, but we had one team that was in Zermatt for two months. And so I kept going back and forth to Zermatt and that was like, that was where my war was. So I knew Knew there was stuff going on, you know, all across Kabul, and there were stuff happening in in uh, RC North and West and South and all that. But my little world, my little fight was with with my uh, training team in Zermatt for two months with the locals there, and that's that's what my experience was like doing coin and it was so divorced from what most of the games were where you're like trying to do like all of afghanistan across 10 years or 20 years or whatever and like i i don't i mean you get kind of a sense of what's going on from there and i don't get me wrong those are great games but it's that wasn't what my war was my war was much closer to uh individual soldiers individual afghans than than that huge you know wide over the world experience so i i was trying to figure out how do i how do i go and show that so i i want to pick a much smaller area i picked zermatt just because it was an unusual name and i spent so much time there and then i looked at the mechanics and in how to try to portray that without it turning into a big kinetic first person shooter type thing that there's a million games out there that are already that so if you want to go fight a skirmish level game I, I don't need to reinvent that wheel because so many other people have done it and done really good jobs of that but that's not something i was interested in but i want to show that i wanted to show the aspect that you could go out there and spend a whole time in zermatt and not get in a firefight not getting a tick um, you, you could just have that experience and be working there in danger you know because it's a combat zone but you know you've you've got other things on your mind and that's where the concept behind Zermatt came from is to like look at the different things you can do you can patrol you can construct you can recruit you can um actually go and find out what um work on revealing what the actual local population feels about you which is actually how you win the game and then of those four options there's a fifth one which is actually attacking but i've played games of Zermatt where neither side ever used that they, it just didn't fit into what their objectives were, so they just never attacked. And I yeah. think that's probably an indication that, it, you know, the design is pretty close to 
what uh, that experience, at least the experience that I had, is that you could be there for two months and, and never actually get into a a firefight um, and still still do your job, still conducting counterinsurgency um, without ever having to pull a trigger. What's the feedback? What what kind of feedback did you get from other folks who had similar deployments to yours that might have seen the game? Uh, for the most part, pretty common, uh, pretty uh, uh, positive, I guess I should say. Uh, they they recognized what was going on there and they they saw their experiences in there. Um, Afghanistan is such a such a strange country from the standpoint of. Um, one valley on one side of a mountain range it can be just this this horrible battle every single day you peek your head over the over the wall and it's you're in immediate firefight and there's mortars going off and every time you have a convoy um you're getting hit and ieds are going off and on the other side of the valley or other side of the mountain range everybody's drinking tea and they're talking about the road project and how many girls are going to attend the new school you put up and it's a whole different world it, it's it's just crazy that there's that that degree of separation um just a mountain range apart from each other and how different the their views are and their their lives are um and that's makes afghanistan fascinating one of the reasons why i think nobody's really successfully governed it is because it's so difficult with so many different you know basically subcultures going on there to try to unify that whole country. Well, because it's 74 different countries with one name. Right, right. Yeah. And everybody's gone in there and had their chance and they stirred the pot up, you know, population was <laughs> around through there. And so you'll see some Hazara people you know, like I wasn't expecting to see any Hazara people here uh, that they're they they would be at some far flung outpost way away from where their, you know, their their natural um, homelands are. But that's the way Afghanistan works. One of the things that I liked about Zermatt was and, and something that I think increases the replayability, but also the, the hidden objective nature of it adds to a bit of the tension trying to figure out what your opponent is trying to accomplish you've got variable victory conditions that you draw your victory condition cards you know different in each game and so this game i'm trying to accomplish these three things or these two things and then the next game i'm trying to do two completely different things even if i know the full universe of options that my opponent might be picking from trying to figure out which of those they are doing while watching the game unfold i still don't know um, right it can still be be difficult to do. And so it it adds to the that fog of war tension that I can see where the dudes are on the map, but I can't necessarily, I don't necessarily know what it is they're trying to do, but also the replayability that, you know, each game I'm drawing different victory conditions. So even if I crack the code on one, there's 11 other options that could be in play in a future game. Yeah, I, I really wanted to get after allowing people to have some player agency in their choices for how, the what the ending conditions were so when you choose your mission you you have a choice of, of four cards and you get to choose two of those so you don't have the full deck of cards that also slows the game down when people have a full deck because then they're they're trying to min max their design as far as which choices they're going to make so if you just say it's randomly four and you get to pick two they have choice yet there's enough randomness in there that like you said it makes for a different game yeah. each time yeah so it's a fun game got my cut not that the audience can see the video that we're talking on, but my copy's stacked up on the table back there behind me. It's nice. currently under point blank V for victory from uh, from lock and load, just where it happens to be in the stack <laughs> on the table. Uh, but I am taking it this weekend over to, uh, to our local war game day with us here over at Gamers Army. I'm, I'm dragging that one over with me because somebody had said they were interested in it. So I'm going to I'm gonna bring okay. it up take a look. Ah. Ah. Ah.
So we've got your design. We got Zermatt. We got Gallipoli. We got USS Laffey, which is it's essentially tower defense, but it's a historical tower defense, right? It's it's uh, the ship that wouldn't die. Twenty six Japanese planes attacked that day while they were on picket duty in April 1945, and somehow, even though they got hit like three or four times, it did not sink. And it's not a big ship; it's a destroyer. Um, and I had the uh, the fortune of getting invited to, by the Laffey crew to come out to the Laffey on one of their work work parties. Uh, so the designer Mike Hyman and I, we had a chance to go out there, which was which was interesting because there's the two former Marines out there on this Navy ship, and <laughs> there is no end of grief given to us, but we're pretty good about that, and I'm pretty good about giving it back. So um, we had a good time, and it was a the surprising thing for me was it's a it's a small ship, right? It's a destroyer. Yeah. So when you you've played so many games, like you play at Victory. Um, victory in the Pacific of War at Sea, destroyers don't even rate. They're just too small to even be considered a counter on there. Yeah. But then when you get on there, that ship, because I was running back and forth, you know, hauling a grinder from point A to point B or whatever, and uh, those days were so long, by the time I got down, I'm looking down at my watch, and I'm like close to 20,000 steps, and I never stepped foot <laughs> off this destroyer. Yeah. So that was fascinating. The other thing that I found was fascinating, but it was just how little armor it had. And I just... You know, growing up uh, in in the when I left the Marine Corps, I, I joined the Army National Guard and became an armor officer. And so I'm used to armor, you know, like an M1. So I know what yep. frontal armor is, and there's a lot of assurity of working in a vehicle that's got that much frontal frontal armor on it. You know, front towards enemy, and you're usually pretty good. Um, those destroyers, there's like barely an inch of steel on those gun emplacements, and the rest of it was just tin. Yeah, and it was like, wow. and it's not sloped. It's to, to no, it was, angle. And I'm like looking at the damage that was on there after these attacks and just ripping bits of the ship right off. And I sat back and like, man, those guys had some guts like you wouldn't believe to be able to go out there and, and go into harm's way like that in, in basically an unarmored vehicle. Yeah, yeah. No, I, like you, tanker, happy to uh, happy to close with and destroy the enemy, but doing it inside a very heavily armored cocoon. Give me a big-ass gun to shoot at the bad guys, but but give me something to wrap around myself while doing so. Right, from two or three uh, clicks away, yeah, let's do that all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally down for that. Um, all right, so Judean Hammer, um, <laughs> it's, it's you know, counterinsurgency in the Holy Land. <laughs> you know, talk, talk to us a bit. Well, that game someone just discovered that um i was starting a small historical game company and said hey would you take a look at this and the designer robin david had some really interesting games but they're like word games you know um they weren't historical they weren't word games and so i was like yeah well we'll see and it was the first time it actually used i think it was tabletopia uh or tabletop simulator so i'm I'm trying to figure that out and i'm like never done it before so i was like i don't really know if this is going to be a thing for me but i started playing that game and like Bam! Instantly, I started playing that game. Like this is all the this is all the bits of area control games that I like. Um, but it had such interesting nuance to it. Like it's a snappy game. It's not going to take long uh, because when the deck runs out, you're done. So you you don't have to worry about the game staying over its its desired leg. And then the fact that if you want to play a card for ops, the, the card keeps going. But if it's your card and you want to play it for the super cool event on there, you can do that. But then that card is gone for the rest of the game. 
it's removed from the deck and you have a shared deck. And so additionally, those cards that have your cool abilities on it are also your combat cards. Mm -hmm. So the more events you play, you hopefully you're getting some really great results from that because you get you're making yourself weaker and weaker as the as time goes on. I just found that was fascinating. So I didn't have any idea about the history. I learned a lot. Uh, I actually read a really fascinating book based off of um, during the Kickstarter. Um, I think Day of Atonement. They said you should read that. So then once the Kickstarter was done, I read that. I'm like this is even more fascinating. But uh, yeah, I learned a lot of history about that period, which I knew absolutely nothing about before uh, I started making that game. All right, that brings us up to the latest one that, look, we, we do a crowdfunding episode every season. And, and one of the things we always do is everybody pulls up their, their Kickstarter cues and takes a look at how late everything is. Stonewall Uprising showed up early. And uh, right. and so, you know, look, you promised it in November. It showed up in time for Unboxing Day in October, which was pretty damn cool. Um, and I think that's the second one you've delivered early, isn't it? Uh, second or third. Yes. Um, I've had two that have been on time. And the others have been early. Yeah. So <clears throat> Stonewall Uprising, not a war game, clearly a conflict game, historically based. I'm sure on the heels of Gallipoli and Laffey and Zermatt and even to an extent Judean Hammer, because it's still a revolt in the, you know, in, in, in the ancient times. Somebody's looking at Stonewall Uprising and scratching their head and going, vert the flirt. So, so how did <laughs> yeah. this come about? So first of all, it's Stonewall Uprising, the fight for gay civil rights. This is this is clearly not your traditional hex encounter, blow shit up kind of war game. No. How did this come about? How did this happen? Um. I was looking, you know, so you're, as a publisher, you're always looking for another game. And Taylor Schuss, the designer of Stonewall, knew Joe Schmidt, uh, the designer of the Gallipoli game. And so they said, hey, if you're shopping for a game, and Taylor had been shopping for a while, and a lot of people were interested in it, the gameplay a lot of people were interested in, because he's got some really interesting mechanics there, but the topic people just didn't want to cover, because right. it's it's not, uh, it doesn't fit into a lot of traditional uh, boxes. Um, um, and for some people, the, the topic is going to be something that they're not comfortable with. And I get that. Um, but yeah, it has I, a very real possibility of pissing a lot of folks off. It does. It does. Um, but it's history. So, yeah. Um, I, I've said that Catastrophe Games is not a war game company. It is a historical game. company. Now, most of most of the games that we have are um, are you know probably war games but not all of them are so i just wanted to make that point there that with stonewall um this fits into our historical our historical line as opposed to just being we're historical but all we do is war games right yeah so yeah. um some of the other games we got down the pike are are probably going to keep exploring the non-war game aspect of history um i'm not sure you know going back to the is that a good idea from the publisher standpoint? Because I don't know what the interest is in that market, but I guess we'll find out here down the pike. So, yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was an interesting game. I learned a lot from that. Different from the other games that I have made, I commissioned individual art for every single card, and that was an expensive and time-consuming process. Yeah. And the dog thinks so too. The dog is very excited about the whole process. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. uh, he sat there right next to me as I was looking at every image. So uh, I think he's got personal involvement in that. And so thought that that was worthy of his own contribution there. Yeah. So the, uh, the dog is now scarred for life based on the, uh, the graphic. That's right. <laughs> so the, one of the things that 
that that I ran into when I was uh, making my my feeble attempt at being a war game publisher. And, and again, I was barely above a vanity press myself. Just I did most of the game design, although I had some scenario design work coming from some other people. Um, the one of the things that I learned pretty early on was if you're a game publisher, you're not just in the game design business, you're in the shipping business. You're going to yes. spend a significant amount of time getting to know your friends at the local post office. To an extent, you've with your partnership with Blue Panther, you've been able to offload some of that stuff to those guys because I know, uh, you know, one or two of the games I've gotten from you, I got the shipping notifications from Steve, not not direct from you guys. Correct. Yep. Um, but but you've still done some of your own shipping, so sort of. What, what was some of the balance there of, hey, I just want to design games and publish games and this is really cool with, oh crap, I've still got, I'm I'm still in the fulfillment business to an extent. And and how much easier, tougher, more or less enjoyable has it been being able to just sort of unload all that to somebody like Blue Panther, uh, which means it's less headache for you, but it also means you're sort of trusting somebody else to, to take care of an important part of your business for you. Uh, exactly. I I looked at um, what what that whole work was like. Um, and because I'd started off at Academy Games, um, I helped on the Vikings uh, Kickstarter. Mm that they had and that was a you know close to a million dollar kickstarter um and then i was the one that helped manage the, like the shipping across the globe and so i had my wise my eyes wide open i like i knew what pain i was i was walking into as far as that goes um but i also looked at i looked around i looked at different models and i looked at it printing overseas the traditional model and that it had so many challenges to it um and and costs and hidden costs with it um and that was before you know there was this this crazy run up with a with the shipping prices for freight uh coming from from asia um and i knew that i was not going to be able to devote that time to it until i fully retired which who knows when that's going to be but it's at least five years from now so to be able to go and make the games that publish the games there's no way i don't think i could do this without the model of the print on demand using steve as not only the printer but also the fulfiller uh because shipping is such an important part to that and steve has got it figured out for the most part um so working with steve has been really it's the only way that i could have done it um had, you know, I'll take a take an example. If you had started your company 15 years later, you might have been able to look at that model as well, and you might still be a publisher because you've been able to go and use a print-on-demand like Steve, what Steve's got, and it really, really changes the business. Yeah. Now, yeah. I will say, shipping is is still like like trying to figure out overseas. Um, they changed the rules on that for Kickstarters last year. And my first two Kickstarters, I could sell overseas to Europe. And then after that, I couldn't. Because uh, yeah. Steve can't ship there. And um, it's kind of it kind of sucks from the standpoint that I'll see European game companies do their Kickstarters. And, that you know, half their people that are backing it are coming from the United States because it's really easy to ship to us. Um but on the other way, it's it's not. So I've had to then go out there and working with Steve and doing stuff on my own, try to go out and figure out where some inner other international partners are. Like right now, I'm trying to figure out how to get games into Canada. I had it solved once, and uh, now I gotta I gotta work on that piece again because the cost to ship to Canada had just skyrocketed. And, it's a half day's drive, dude. Just smuggle them over the border. You know what? I <laughs> if I have more sales. You know, I get like 10 or 15 sales, you know, on a Kickstarter. 
Canada. If I had more than that, if I had double that, it might be worth it just to you know drive to Windsor and uh, and say, hey, look at me, I'm an American. Do you have anything to declare? I got a bunch of war games, you know, and and just try it that way. But I'm not quite there yet, so that drive to Windsor hasn't uh, hasn't happened yet. But it is very tempting. Let me tell you, uh, looking at what the shipping rates are, because my my sales to Canada just they've they've fallen off. I'm like I get like one a year now, and I used to have I used to have a lot more than that, even though I had fewer games to sell. Yeah, well, because it doubles the the shipping's doubled the price to Canada at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so Canadian guys start ordering from Tim again, so that he will he will take the drive <laughs> over the Friendship Bridge there and uh, and go drop everything at the Windsor Post Office for you. So so you Sounds get like it. From from local post, I, honestly, you know the biggest the, the two biggest differences from from when when bayonet games was a thing in the in the early aughts, the early and mid aughts, to what you guys are doing now. And I say you guys, you're one of several people using that Blue Panther print on demand model that White Dog Games is doing the same. You know, Hollenspiel obviously is doing the same, and and Amabel's going great guns with this. The the two big things, the fulfillment is definitely a a, a big difference. And, and there were some tricks that some people kind of taught me later in, in my attempt at running the company. For instance, one of the things you put on your website is we do all of our shipping on Friday. Like you set aside Friday to do nothing but shipping. You do all the shipping on Friday. Everything should, even if they order it Monday, it doesn't ship till Friday. Get over it, right? I'm a one man show. That's just what you're going to have. But, but be clear about communicating that up front with people that we ship everything on Friday. And so that, that way helps you manage your fulfillment time. The, the, the time you're spending on fulfillment as as a, a tool you could do. But truthfully, the, the biggest difference in what you guys are able to do versus what I was doing back then is, is a much higher quality product through essentially a one-stop shop. Hey, Steve, I need, I need a map. I need a box. I need these counters. I need these couple of things. Um, and, and Steve's got the magic Dr. Seuss machine, right? You know, you sort of hit the button and the game comes out the other end and, and it's better quality than I was able to put together. And you're, you're single sourcing it all. Whereas I was getting maps from one place. I was getting counters from another, you know, I'm, I'm getting UPS boxes full of counters dropped on my front step. that I've got to then go back and collate into boxes that I'm assembling myself. And, and that level of work was unsustainable for what I was trying to do. And it's, again, right. One of the reasons I walked away, whereas, you know, nobody had cracked the code on that print on demand thing yet. Nobody had, I don't think anybody tried at that point. Um, you know, the, the, web-based sales of those things was barely, you know, a thing. And and to be able to apply that print-on-demand model, yeah, it would have made a difference. There's probably still enough about running a company that I wouldn't have enjoyed that I probably I probably still would have walked away. But um, some of the headaches that I had and some of the disappointments I had with what I was able to produce myself, certainly somebody like what Steve's able to produce would have completely blown that out of the water. Yeah, it it change the model. And the other thing that, that having him do fulfillment is I don't have uh, a basement full of, of product. I have some product in the basement. Um, most of this, like the space that I have devoted to game stuff is, is for play tests. Um, so I have, uh, I continually like run out of, um, the little counter cubes, you know, you like the, from the teacher store where you get the yep. like, 500 counter cubes and they come in like 10 different colors. I've, I've ordered like three or four of those things. Um, and like, I think that'll last a while. And like six months later, I'm like, um, down to like pink and light green. So I think I need to order some more for the next wave. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I end up having here is, is things to help me push along through, through play tests here. Um, 
Yeah, if I'm not doing playtests online, playtesting online has is, is also been a huge change because that's something that, you know, if you want, had someone that was interested in working with you on the game, they had to be from your town. You know, you just didn't have a way of working around that. And now, you know, the first time I played Judean Hammer, Robin is from Ireland. So yeah. we just scheduled a time to do it. And I'm playing a game, I'm playing a board game um, with all the digital pieces with a guy from Ireland and just couldn't have done that, you know, yeah. a few years ago. To the point where I looked at that and said, yeah, I'll sign a contract with you. Let's go ahead and make this game. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. We've been through what you've had so far uh, that, that's actually made it out the door. Campaign Fall Blau is on Kickstarter right now. By the time people are hearing this, you probably still have a couple of days left in the campaign. Oh, yeah, um, we got lots of time. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about Campaign Fall Blau. Solo game. Look, World War II East Front has been done a, a time or two in the past. What, what's Campaign Fall Blau bringing to the table that I haven't already seen? So my philosophy for the company is that you're going to re, you're not going to spend your day stuck in the rules. You're going to have some fast play. The game gets done with an hour or two. Uh, there's still plenty of decisions to be made with that. And so looking at that design philosophy, I'm like, trying to find games that fit within that. So when I looked at Fall Blau, what you can do is you can take this massive campaign, you know, that, you know, this is where Stalingrad, the whole mm -hmm. end of the Sixth Army happened in this, but I can play a game of Fall Blau and fight this whole campaign in an hour. Um, sometimes if I'm doing horribly, I can get this done in 20 minutes because I get wiped <laughs> out right off the bat. How to lose in the Eastern Front in 20 minutes. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I'm dead game over. Um, but that was what intrigued me is that it had enough of the history that I understood what was going on. There was these key aspects in geography. Do you go south? Do you go for Stalingrad? You have to marshal your forces and they're all historical the way Martin is putting Martin Melbardis, the, the designer, put them in there. Do I want to use Italian allies with this? Which general should be leading which assault? How do I want to configure the battlefield? So on and so forth. A lot of it's really abstracted away because you're playing a, you're, you're playing East Front in an hour, right? I mean, yep. there has to be some abstraction there, but I really enjoyed the solo play from that. And it was different enough from any of the other solo plays that I've had. I thought, you know what? I think people are, will like this. Plus, to be honest, uh, I cheat. I go on BGG <laughs> contests and I look at, you know, stuff that people have already said, this is a really cool game and won awards. I'm like, that's the folks I'm tracking down. Like, hey, you did really well in this contest. Do you think you'd be interested in publishing this? So um, Martin had a lot of people that were really interested in the game, even after the, the game contest was over. They had folks that were like, hey, why don't you do this and do that? And working with him on the design. So he had a game that was really pretty much done. Um, my development work with him was, uh, it was designed for a card contest. Um, and I looked at that and said, this was a good game for the card contest, but I can put stuff in a box. So let's take this thing instead of it just being a series of, of cards kind of floating around there and if you bump the table, they go all over the place. And let's make a board on this and let's put regular counters on there. And so we, we took a, what used to be a bunch of cards on there uh, in the original design and turned it into a couple of mats to organize things a little bit easier, um, a lot easier to manipulate and play with and uh, I think hopefully improve the game uh, experience for everybody. What's up after Fall Blau? The website shows Lonely Cairn. Is that actually next or is that just planned next? It is probably next. Um, it's another game uh, that uh, it's another solo game. 
And card-based game, it is the attempt by the Royal Navy to find a Northwest Passage. Uh, in real life, it didn't work, but in the game, there's a chance that you could make it work. Uh, like a lot of these solo games, um, people who play a lot of solo games like like the challenge to it. So the, it is not super easy to find that Northwest Passage uh, because it's a series of unfortunate events, which, you know, is, is what <laughs> happened there. Yeah. But it's like, ah, oh, scurvy again, ah, oh, you know. Um, anyhow, so that is what I'm hoping is is going to be uh, the next one after that, after Lonely Karn. Um, once we get past that, there's Scarper, which is a World War One Western front game that plays two player game plays in about an hour uh, that goes through all from from 1914 to 1918. And you can get through there in about an hour. Card-driven game. Uh, it really the is there the a Snoopy card? Is there a Snoopy card? Is there a Snoopy card to Snoopy oh, face off with the Red Baron? No, because so I'm learning, right? I'm, I'm learning that the art is expensive. So uh, <laughs> anything that looks like there might possibly be any kind of drama with a copyright, eh, eh, I'm not going there. So no, there is not a Snoopy card in there. Uh, nor will there ever be a Snoopy card, just because I don't want to ever play. The, the 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 dark dark horde of lawyers that would come from uh, Orlando against me. So no, no Snoopy card. Um, but so there's that. Um, other things we've got on the pike. Solder City, which if I can find a way to reduce the cost, is is a um, it's actually a pre precursor to Zermatt. Um, it is the the fight um, between the the Mahdi insurgents in Baghdad versus the, the coalition uh, within the urban environments of the suburb or uh, not really even a suburb, uh, technically, I guess it's more the, it's the sea, right? But it was a, a planned neighborhood. So it is a square. So yeah. unlike Zermatt, which is you can when you're making the game, you can kind of make the game look like whatever you want because you just assume there's mountains all around you. Here, it's going to be a four by four grid, and yeah. you yeah. you have your side and they have their side, and so the victory points are are you still want to control each of these. They're not villages anymore; they're blocks, but you really don't want the other guy to control your 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 half the board. So yeah. you have to work really hard to keep them out. And the other aspect that we're adding that's not in the original game was the media, because I never saw reporters or not. Uh, I, I suppose <laughs> it's possible that they could have gone out there, but extraordinarily unlikely. Um, but that's not the case in the fight in Iraq. So the media matters a whole lot there so that that's like a whole separate scoreboard and that could be like one of the victory conditions you're working at is is working the media piece yeah um so there's that and then if uh another design that i'm working on right now is uh probably the longest design i'm working on which is a division level simulation and it's not really simulation it's a lot of abstract of uh what i i call the game true command and you are pushing, as a division commander would, you are just pushing out your brigades or your regiments. So you have like four or five units. Uh, right now they're blocks, but they, they could be just big counters. Uh, there are scouts, <clears throat> and they're all hidden so that the other side, until you make contact, you don't know what the other side's units are yet. Um, and just like in real life, you you don't actually... Units aren't just like a generic clot of yeah. move the 101st. The 101st is led by a general, um, and that general could be good or bad. 
hopefully good. It's 101st after all. But um, so there, each unit then has a commander, and in the part at the beginning of the game, you're going to assign what what quality commander is with each unit to based off of what your needs are. Or if you want to have a true simulation, you can just go ahead and randomly pick those and, yeah. and find out if the guy running your tank battalion is doesn't really know what the heck he's doing. Um, he had a good friend at Branch that got him a cushy job. Right, right. A little nepotism there, right? Uh, and then you've got your, if you don't, you know, on your turn, you can either move a unit or take a unit action, or you can draw from a staff bag. And in the staff bag, you've got your regular staff functions so s1 personnel s2 for intelligence s3 for operations s4 for logistics and then they have their ability to to affect things out there uh, there's even a plans officer that you can start stacking up plans where you can hold these special abilities until a trigger happens and then unleash all of those um events which might give you extra attacks or extra moves um when when you feel like it's right in the battlefield to do that so I, i'm excited about the game it's just taking me forever to work out the various um aspects of that but i'm hoping yeah. that i'm near the end of that and then i just have to get some scenarios out Origins, you guys had the Arabian equivalent of Judean Hammer yes. on the table that you were futzing around with. Actually got a couple of uh, high-powered Grand Mucky Mucks from D.C. to sit down and play with you guys. <laughs> Yes, I did. Uh, yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, you talked about Kevin and uh, and Thompson. Yeah, that those guys they were fun to have with that game. That that's a fun game because it's a three player version of the same rules for Judean Hammer. Um, and in addition to the the it, the it, for those that don't know this, this is the game is based off of the. Um, pre-World War One, and then World War One and post-World War One period where the country that became Saudi Arabia fought an internal struggle. That's where the name the Arabian struggle came from. And the Saudis won that. They came out on top. And so it became Saudi Arabia. But it, there were a couple other factions that were that were running neck and neck with them that could have been, you know, could have changed the name. It could have been um, something else there. One of the other neat parts to, about that design is the fact that they've got uh, um, the, the imperial powers are there. So at the beginning of the game, Turkey has some of the area and so does England. And as their national fortunes change throughout the game through the different different eras, uh, the Turkish cubes come off and um, the, the UK forces change as well. Um, just a really fascinating part of history. Again, one of those one of those parts of history I didn't know anything about until I started getting into the game design and said, wow, what an interesting time um had no idea about the history behind there but uh it really comes out while you're playing the game a really fascinating history so it's still out there somewhere that you might get to it it's just not on the calendar yet um no it's uh all right yeah you're right i i don't know when that's coming out <laughs> <laughs> i would love to say it's going to come out this year but i i hate to over promise things um, there's like 60 days left in this year. Okay, yeah, I'm already I'm already in 23. I mean, <laughs> October 1st, the uh, new training year began. So as far as my army job, we're we're in 23 right now, and uh, uh, I'm worried about 24 when next October rolls around. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so so that that was the the whirlwind tour through sort of where catastrophe games is right now. What's uh give us the downside? What's been the biggest headache so far for you running? Catastrophe? No names so many headaches um you talked about shipping that thing just drives me nuts you know i i had so many sales that i had in the first two games to europe and then that all just went away 
So I tried to do some workarounds with like pre-orders and things like that, but it's just not the same as being able to sell directly to them like everybody else can. Uh, and we're not big enough like GMT or you know the big players in the in the in the process. I'm just a little micro micro publisher that I I have to to find workarounds. I can't go and do direct like like they can. So that is a huge pain and uh, in, in will continue to be a huge pain. The second huge pain is art. Um, especially after going through Stonewall and doing individual art for, for each card. <clears throat> that is such a pain to, to go through. Um, and I, I have little artistic ability and no digital capability. So I'm not going to be able to go in there and futz in Adobe Illustrator to go fix something. So <clears throat> if I see something that's off, that means I've got to go back to somebody and try to fix it. Um, I'm fortunate that one of my daughters is a very good artist. She uh, Grace did the cover for Zermatt. Um, and she can go out there. She's done a lot of the rules for the company. Uh, but it is, even with that, it's still one of those things where you're just constantly going over in version 14 of the rules because, ah, we missed a comma or that arrow is going the wrong way. And so you're constantly fussing with that. And it just takes up so much time um, that it is... Uh, a, a huge frustration for me. Uh, I guess I, you know, the third thing for me is <clears throat> cost for production. Since I'm printing in the United States, my costs are dramatically higher than what almost everybody else is uh, who, who don't use the print on demand model. So we have to look at, especially after I've had some expensive games that were just really expensive to produce like Stonewall and Zermatt. Now, <clears throat> as I evaluate what kind of games to make, I really am trying to look at how much that production, how much that art, how much all that is going to cost versus what I, you know, the expected gain at the end as far as what I think the sales are so that I don't price myself into the hole. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's something I've been trying to be a lot more cognizant of. I mean, it's been two years. I'm starting to figure these things out, but it, it's, it is an expensive proposition to figure this out. Um, you know, when you're first going in there and you're like, I think this is going to work. And then you, once you go behind the veil and see how things actually play out and once you've, you know, once you've already committed to to putting individual art on all the cards and like ow this is uh this is more than i expected so that's been one of my huge frustrations um wrapping so that starving up. artists looking to get their start contact him <laughs> he uh he needs cheap artists uh not just artists i'm really looking for graphic artists so if anybody out there wants to do side work as graphic artists i i have a lot of work for <laughs> so you're talking like the page layout and design, the table stuff, right, not necessarily right. just the counter art, but like the and the, the cards. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't, I have one game that doesn't have cards, so cards seem to be a constant theme. Well, I love Fog of War, so I any way to build that. One of the easiest ways of doing that is through cards. So because I design wise, I, I gravitate towards those kind of games. Most of my games involve cards, and so there's a lot of very particular ways that you have to go build cards to to make sure that they're produced the correct way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No. I, uh, I, I've done no small number of them myself. It sounds like you need to get to know, uh, get to be some good friends with, with some local graphic design programs at colleges and universities. Hey, anybody looking for some side work? Come talk to me. <laughs> As the armchair dragoons march into the ninth season of their podcast mentioned in dispatches, we need to make time to thank our Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Patrick Garrity, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knoll, Hethwell Wargames, Robert, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell, Treb Curry, 
Staggerwing, and Patrick Mullen for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. The last thing that I, I have learned is that you never trust a PDF. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that the whole idea behind PDFs was, hey, this is this universal thing that when you open it up, any Mac, PC, whatever it is, they'll open it up. It'll all be the same way. And it'll, it'll work swimmingly. It'll be wonderful. Now, I discovered very painfully during the Judean Hammer process that that is not the truth. Um, I ended up having to reship about $1,000 worth of maps because because the PDF looked great on my screen. They looked great on Steve's screen. And then he put it into the printer and, you know, the gonculator starts doing its work and outproduced a whole bunch of maps that had not the color scheme that we needed. Well, basically all the victory points were based off regions and they didn't show up. So oh, man. you Yikes. really couldn't play the game without that. So that was an expensive learning lesson. You could have just shipped everybody Sharpies. You know, there's a <laughs> uh, game two. You're not going to go and like make a, a name for yourself by doing things the the pain, painless but cheap way. You know what I mean? I mean, it, yeah. that was one of those crossroads at the company. Like, okay, let's just reship it. We're going to, we're going to eat this one, but let's do it right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I just had it. I just had it again. I was printing off, uh, sent cards to Steve. I look at it on, on the computer. It's uh, prototypes for, for fall blow. Everything looks great. And then when I get it back, um, two cards, just, you know, randomly, just two random cards, um, had, were printed that they had two card backs on the same card and two card fronts on the same card. And it was just another PDF thing that if you looked at it on the screen, it was fine, but there was something on there that when it talked to the computer, um, it, it decided to go a different route and, uh, it rebelled. And, One uh, of the Starbelly sneeches inside the Seuss machine hit the wrong. Oh button. yeah, yeah. Again, can't trust a PDF. That is that is the one thing that I have learned from my short experience. You know, making six different games is uh, those those little bastards will cheat on you every chance they can. So <laughs> don't ever leave them by themselves because they'll they'll find a way to screw you. If if you had the ability. To sort of take the shackles off and and you had the artists at your beck and call you had the production capability at your beck and call what's the uh what's the dream game you want to spit out that, that you would love to see catastrophe games crank out if if you if you didn't have to worry too much about all those production constraints obviously like in this perfect world you'd be able to ship 500 of them to europe as well but let's uh let, let's stick within the bounds of reality and uh if you could put together sort of your your perfect cool whatever it is is it the uh platoon level entire east front game is it the uh you know the waterloo rpg where every soldier has his own stuff like is it is it the uh the world's fastest playing american civil war game what's the what's the dream game you want to create there? okay this is the point in 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 the show where tim uh ticks off half the gaming population um only so, half try hard. well we'll see we'll see maybe it's higher <laughs> i don't know it could be higher um so i started off playing you know the traditional avalon hill games 
I love Squad Leader. When I got Squad Leader, I thought that was the bomb. That was the best game ever. And I played it to death. And, you know, I had the, the different names memorized. Uh, Uber Graup, you know, the 10-3 guy yep. that was like the superhero guy. Like, oh, that guy's awesome. And I thought that was just fantastic and, and just couldn't get enough of that. And then I go, go into the military. Um, I go... I was Intel in the in as an enlisted guy in the Marine Corps. So I didn't get a chance to really do a lot of tactics. Probably a good thing for the Marine Corps. <laughs> and then I, I go to school at Michigan State and I take small unit tactics. And um, if you remember the 7-8 uh, Infantry Bible, uh, yep. the Army FM, I memorized that thing. And then between enjoying that because i actually liked that i it, i thought that was a interesting reading that shows how much of a weird tactical geek i was and then squad leader then that class was just a joke i mean i just sailed through that got my easy it was an elective for me i got my easy points to it and i was like oh this is super easy and then reality came in when my infantry battalion didn't need infantry or didn't need intelligence officers anymore they were really short of infantry platoon leaders and they said okay you're going to become a platoon leader. Uh, welcome to the infantry. So I showed up there with all my 7-8 memorized and years of playing squad leader. And I go out there and I just realized how absolutely chaotic combat was and how I struggled to keep my three squads together and not knowing what was beyond the, you know, my visual range and all that. And I sat to myself and said, this is not, this is not squad leader what I'm living through right now. You know, <laughs> um, there's this thing called fog of war and friction that I just don't get from, from that. So um, I appreciate the, the like framework that playing those games gave to me. But I said to myself, I, I can't see me playing these kind of games again because it's perfect intelligence every single time you go out there. You know exactly what the enemy's going to do and you can like do the math and all that. I'm like, that was not my experience. You know, as, as a platoon leader and a company commander, not my experience whatsoever. You just never knew what the what the enemy was up to. So Fog of War, to you me... You probably didn't know what you were up to half the time. That's right. That's right. So, like, Fog of War has to be there for me. And so tiles and cards and things like that. What brought me back into the game world, into the, the war game world, was... Um, playing conflict of heroes um and that's how I, I started up a conversation with uva talking about different ways to you know work on this and some adding adding this to add more fog of war and things like that and that sparked that whole com long conversations with him with some a little bit of whiskey and um <laughs> and uh, some you know deep nights there at Fremont, Ohio, and and uh, that got that started up my uh, my interest in gaming again to be honest but so if to go, there was a. This has been a long, long answer to your question, right? But I'm going to get back to it here. <laughs> if I could go out there, I would have some super cool game at the platoon level that replicates the fog of war. And I think there's some pretty decent games out there that have done that. Then I would like to go up to the company and the battalion and division level. And my the true command, I think, is trying to get to, to work towards that. But that's the kind of games that I would like to do. So if I had nothing else to, to worry about, I would put out simple games that show people what it's like as far as dealing with the fog of war, dealing with the friction. Um, shoot, the things that every almost every war game is just a is 
an automatic that you don't even have to think about is when you say move this unit from point A to point B, you just bloop, 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 you follow the road, you move your four yep. X's, it automatically happens. I don't know how many times I have been <clears throat> out there as especially as a headquarters and headquarters company commander, like I need to get from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Grayling, Michigan. I hope you know, this should take me three hours to move. But in reality, you know, I'm coming in way past midnight because something broke down and the guy was supposed to top off the fuel. But for whatever reason, he didn't top off the fuel and the sergeant didn't check. And so then we had to go and get a refueler that was two hours ahead. Now I had to come back, blah, 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 you know. What should be a three-hour movement turned into like a nine-hour drama, and that's never replicated, you know, because we just assume that all units are perfectly capable of moving from point A to point B, and unfortunately, that's not really how things work. So The, the classic example that I always give in terms of like friendly fog of war as an issue is the ambush of the 507th Maintenance Company in Nazaria, Iraq. We'll never oh, yeah. It, that, that'll never happen in a war game. Right. How would it happen? Because what mechanism is going to cause that to yeah. like... You, uh, you could have a random event card. Right. That's the best you're going to get. There's there's never a check for incompetent lieutenant to put the graphics on the map upside down. Right. right? There's <laughs> there's never the check for sergeant not paying attention and misses the turn at the lead of the column. You know, th those things never happen in a game. I, I toyed around with having like a friction die that every time you want to move a unit from point A to point B, you'd have to roll the die and you know, on the one face it would be it wouldn't go there um and on, on the like the sixth face it, it you get an extra text that you could move and it was interesting but people really weren't interested in that level yeah. you know of because yeah. it, it was fiddly you had to kind of keep doing that back and forth and um yeah it it just was something that people weren't interested in seeing, even though that would be a much more realistic experience for what life is really like out there. When you say everybody line up there, you know, that's why it takes so dang long for these units to get ready for a fight is because they have to have rehearsals. They have to get everybody up there. All the supplies have to get up there and you just can't count on all that happening. Somebody has got to go back and verify that it's all ready and then you can launch your attack. Yep. So yeah, the, the, the Russians are figuring that out the hard way. Oh yeah. It's fun to watch them have their, <laughs> you know, the big, the big red bear that we, you know, you and I prepared to, to go up against back in the eighties and, and watching him. Although what I keep telling people is the red bear from the eighties is not Putin's yeah. army today. Um, the equipment may be the same, but there's no heart in in this Russian I, army. I don't even think most of the equipment's the same. Yeah, yeah. It might have probably been better back then because it would have been brand new, you know? Yeah, in, in some cases, yes. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you bring in the fog of war one because uh, again, like full disclosure, I never deployed to a two-way range, right? You you actually had you know rounds fired in your direction in anger. Um, I had curse words directed at me in anger, but I, I never I never left the country. Um, but that said, you know, I one of the places I was stationed was NTC, and I've done several rotations there at Blue Force, so so I've I've gotten as close as you can get with without real bullets flying at you. But even just at NTC, the chaos that you get, and that, that's the point, right? The the whole point is to do it with lasers before you have to go do it for real with real bullets so that that when the chaos does hit you in in the real world it's not the first time um i i think there are a lot of abstractions and simplifications that that folks under 
understand are present in war games, but I think it to to a, a large degree, folks are happy to have them present in war games because it allows them to focus on other aspects of whatever it is they're trying to learn or enjoy about the game. And they're not constantly stuck having their plans thwarted by someone who's ostensibly on their own side, but just incompetent. <laughs> right. Which has happened more than a few times. We've all seen it. Um, the the idea of sort of friendly enemy fog of war, like we we've seen that happen in war games all the time, right? The Columbia blocks, the untried unit system, hidden movement double blind games whatever but but the idea of friendly fog of war is, is a tough thing to do in in war games and you know it's it's a tough nut to crack it'll be interesting to see who finally does it and figure well, i think yeah i i think there's 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 plenty of systems all the ones that you mentioned there i have looked into and i think uh, the world of many of those um it's just how how many of those people are willing to play uh, what is their acceptance level of playing a game where um you know just getting your unit to the fight is half of it is half of your struggle you know yeah. um, and i think a lot of people just aren't really interested in that although when you take a look at this is the thing that as i've been reading about history you know i read grant's diaries and napoleon's diaries the work that they did anticipating what they thought the enemy would doing and then making sure that they lined up the the training and the logistics to make sure that they were able to take advantage of that but that's that's the reason why those people are known you know that it's not because necessarily napoleon you know won almost every battle that he fought but it was because he set the conditions before the battle you know going back to the old sun tzu thing you know yeah. if you can if you can defeat the enemy before you even get into the battle um that's the way to fight and you look at a lot of the great generals and it's because they lined up all the the key aspects of their friendly blue force um, capability. Um, they lined it up and they got it there faster and more organized and more effective than the other guy did. And it wasn't necessarily how fast their machine gun fired or what the yeah. range of their cannon was. It was they had better trained troops that were better equipped, that were, that were leaders that had a a clear understanding of what they needed to do than they, what the other side did. Yeah, it's and the that, old joke about if you find yourself in a fair fight, you fucked up before the fight started. Exactly. So how to go and figure that, to go back, to wrap this all up in a bow, if I could, that would be that perfect game. If I could go figure that one out, and then do it at each of the echelons, you know, like, okay, you got this thing figured out, division, go up to core, you know, you got that good, great, go at the theater level, you know, that would be, that's fascinating to me is just look at how those impacts have all across the, the battlefields. One can dream. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but that is uh, something that obviously I'm pretty animated about. So maybe someday I'll, I'll throw more of those out there and we'll see where we get. This will be on Kickstarter in 2024. It'll be fine. <laughs> sure it will. Yeah. Well, awesome. no, it'll be ready to go on Kickstarter in 2024 and you'll still be looking for artists. Yeah. Okay. That's true. That's a fair statement. That's a good call. Yep. All right. So we're uh, we're a little over the hour mark once... Uh... <laughs> Once we get all the coughing edited out of this, because Tim and I are both fighting some illness, we'll probably come in a little under an hour uh, editing this together. But I definitely want to thank Tim for, you know, stopping and talking to us some about catastrophe games. Again, small press. Tim is Tim is a little too modest. This is more than just a micro press. It is a small and growing company with some really neat designs that are not just your standard hex encounter and CRT kind of fare. There, there are some very interesting things to look at, some good narratives to the history that they put in front of you. Um, Again, I've I've played Zermatt, I've noodled around with Stonewall, I've played Laffy. They're all great games. Um, I, I'll be honest, I'm never playing a Gallipoli game. I just Gallipoli doesn't interest me, right? <laughs> it's it's the largest British POW camp of all time. I'm good. I don't need to play it. Um, 
you know, we we know what happened. The guys got stuck on a peninsula because it was a dumb idea. And and the Turks just sort of left them there because that was 200,000 more troops they didn't have to fight. You know, just leave them be. So, But um, if they gained that hill, if they had gotten to the top of the ridge on the first day, the whole campaign may have been different. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, the, the, the Turks would have locked them down from a little further inland and they still would have been stuck on a rock. Oh, so okay. They just would have been stuck on a rock with the high ground. Debbie but, Downer. Fine. Okay. Yeah. Um. But, but definitely Definitely looking forward to seeing what's coming next out of the uh, out of the catastrophe games mad science room there and and looking forward to when you've got a full stable of games and multiple things in print and and, uh, and and start doing sequels and derivatives and you know remakes of sequels of derivatives so yeah I'm looking forward to that too <laughs> so uh, so again artists uh, if you're looking for some side work give Tim a holler because he needs some help there and uh, and the rest of you go 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 buy some of Tim's games and, and look so. So campaign fall blow is on Kickstarter right now. Um, as Kickstarters go, catastrophe games, small company, safe bet. Again, two on time and two early of the four they've done so far, and and all have been very nice packages. So definitely, uh, definitely take a look at that. Um, Tim, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And no uh, problem. Until such time as you figure out how to smuggle games across into Canada, um, <laughs> we will we will call this a night. Audience, uh, thank you. We're we're starting to wind down. Uh, our, our, you know the current season of mention and dispatches uh we've still got some some other episodes left to wind up one we will not be getting to this season is you're not going to get the uh the angry guys yell at clouds uh charlie's awards reaction show the csr awards reaction show um not just because our buddy ardwolf is now running the awards and we don't want to just yell at him because because we'll have no problem yelling at him that's not the issue um they're probably not going to have the awards ready by the end of this year by by the time we're wrapping up this season so we're probably going to launch next season with old guys yelling at charlie's shaped clouds and uh and we'll, we'll get around to complaining about them a little further down the line um we've still got an episode coming on accessories and doodads we're probably still going to do something with the charlies just not yelling about the winners and uh and, and as we head into the holidays we always do sort of the holiday wargaming wishes episode so we'll definitely get to that also uh in the meantime tim it's been a pleasure appreciate you joining us here and uh an audience we'll catch you another time uh next time on another episode of mentioning dispatches